90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. First week of class, so that's exciting. Um, yeah, I mean, it's kind of exciting. Still weird. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but besides that, just chugging along. Um, how about you? Uh, not bad. I'm sitting here with a, a pint of the Pahoyhoy peanut butter porter. So. Oh, oh, you lucky. I've... Um, I'm just going to open myself up for this mocking that I'm going to get. Uh, <laughs> I've been really obsessed with ciders this winter. Um, oh, so you're quitting beer for a while. Oh, I just, it's going to hurt. Okay. Um, <laughs> so you have to appreciate the one that I like the most is this Austin East Ciders because I think that's hysterical. You know, mm-hmm. East Ciders. You know. Yeah. Um, and they have a Sangria Cider. I'm just going to wait and let it. Let you uh, go ahead and load up some <laughs> interesting <laughs> <laughs> some barbs on here. It's a family friendly show, remember? Um, yeah, so I'm uh, I'm having my sangria cider. <laughs> all right, <laughs> it's so great. You can just feel. I just feel that I lost all my cred with you. Like it's gone. <laughs> Is it in like... a pouch with a little straw that you poke <laughs> in? It is not. It is in a can. Thank you. <laughs> With a little straw that you poke in. <laughs> the straws for other reasons. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, okay. I better stop. <laughs> Please, all the cider lovers, send in your hate mail. <laughs> oh, no. I enjoy some ciders as well. Yeah. I don't I don't know what possessed me to buy a 12-pack, but I did. So <laughs> Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. If I ever make it... You know, to your neck of the woods again. I come home with my own growler, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, of course. Okay, great. <laughs> Our growler fills are very economical. <laughs> no, for those of you exactly. listening, I do not sell. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, nobody's listening. <laughs> right, fair. Just our parents. Exactly. Hi, Mom. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we've been... Doing that, staying very busy. You know, I was gone to Penn State. Mm-hmm. Uh, How was traveling again? Was it still weird or what? Uh, it was a little less weird, but it was still weird. Okay. Um, I noticed this time that there was more polarization, if that's possible, mm. <laughs> in the travelers and how they reacted to things. That's too um, bad. <laughs> I mean, we had some flight attendants that weren't even real wild about giving you a sanitizing wipe. And then we had some that were like doing everything but hitting people in the head to get them to sit down <laughs> until it was their turn to deplane. Wow. Uh, that is very interesting. It, it was a wide range. Um, mm-hmm. And the work was good. Uh, we worked five, I guess, five or six very long days <laughs> in a row. Yeah. Not, uh, I, but I we think got, you're ready for that, right? <laughs> Oh, but we got so much done. Uh, it's one of those things where we would check one thing off the list, and then we go, oh, we should do this and this, too, and add them. Uh, so the the punch list went from about eight items to about mm, 17, something like that. <laughs> uh, but we had them all done by the time we left. Oh, that's impressive. That is impressive. Not that I expected anything less. 
but you know. <laughs> and you know, discovered some potentially expensive things needed in some of the equipment. <laughs> what a good businessman. <laughs> well, no the the hydraulic cylinder on this uh, this apparatus uh, started making some real nasty noises. Ooh. Mm, and okay. and that's not business that we're getting because we're not a hydraulic shop. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was glad at least that it was not our equipment that was causing the problem. Mm-hmm. Yes. Those, that's always a plus. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, so. Good. So we're trying yeah, along through January. <laughs> yep. January is almost done. And uh, you, like you said, got started uh, teaching again. And... <laughs> When we were talking a couple days before the recording here, uh, you were telling me some of what you were teaching and said, well, I'm teaching intro to field without going into the field. (laughs) Uh, To which I said, I hope you still make them sit on a Zoom call all day every Saturday like we had to do, except we were out in the field every Saturday freezing our heinies off. (laughs) Could you guys go sit in a cold shower? With the with the computer, yeah, that's this is about what the field work is in, and then um, stand in front of a fan that's blowing at about eighty miles an hour because that's the that's the wind in the field area we're usually in. So, uh, yeah, now you've got your field experience. <laughs> well, so here's a thirty second story I don't think I've told on the show before. Uh, have we talked about that when I had to go to the field with a broken toe? Oh, ouchie! <laughs> no, I don't think so. So, um, I w- on some of the days we'd go into the field i would drive a van right and so i had to go down to motor pool and pick up the van mm-hmm. so everybody else was complaining about we got to be at the building at you know seven o'clock <laughs> and i'm like well, i gotta be at motor pool at, at 6 15 exactly <laughs> so um anyway one morning i was running late i don't remember exactly what had happened but i was running late and uh my apartment at the time was very weird it had two doors into the bathroom <laughs> Which made up pretty much the whole wall, because it was a tiny bathroom. Uh, One went into the bedroom, and one went into the hallway to the living area. The doors were separated by no more than eight inches. Okay. Um, Anyway, so I hopped out of the shower, grabbed a towel, and immediately was running into the bedroom to try to throw some clothes on and get to motor pool. And you know those two really large volumes of Far Side comics? (laughs) Indeed, I do. (laughs) I broke my left pinky toe on those. And then put boots on and proceeded to hike about 10 miles. Look at you. What a trooper. (laughs) Came back purple, swollen. Oh, man. (laughs) About ready to cry by the end of the day. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Um, Knowing the field instructor as I do, I'm guessing you didn't complain about it. No. (laughs) No. No, I just drank coffee with him. Uh, yep. And, awesome. uh, yeah, no, that was, and then, you know, of course, did the, the good geologist remedy afterwards of we got back from the field and I was like, hmm, it's about time to go to McNally's. <laughs> um, well, amusing. I can't say I feel sorry for you because I did that hike seven months pregnant for four weeks in a row. So, yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Uh, yep. <laughs> so, I mean, your students, they're not getting the same experience. So mm-hmm. what uh, what are you going to do to them? 
Right. So, you know, we talked a lot this summer because I had to teach field camp online, which was hard, but at least those students had been on field trips. So we have several sort of seminal field trip experiences as an undergrad. Like everybody goes and intro geology. Generally, everybody goes. Um, and then we have like a big field trip to Galveston. We have a week-long field trip to New Mexico. Look at it. Structure and igneous rocks. And then we have um, a field trip to the Guadalupe Mountains and all this other really great stuff. Um, El Capitan Reef in West Texas. And then they get to my class where we have even more field trips, the places where we were just talking about going. John, so a lot of the Wichita Mountains in Oklahoma. Some I take them to the Arbuckle Mountains in Oklahoma. Yes, there are mountains in Oklahoma. <laughs> um, and do extensive trips. So if you're on Target, so you're following the degree sheet, the majority of this class that I have now, it's, it's actually all but one student who waited a year to take it. No one has been on a field trip except for the intro geology field trip. Ouch. Ouch. And so, so this is a lot different, actually. When you approach this body of students, it's a lot different than the online field camp students because they had all this experience. And for field methods last year, we actually got most of our field work out of the way before school was canceled. Um, and we went online. So it worked out. I mean, it's terrible because of COVID, but I mean, it worked out as good as it possibly could because we got most of our field work done. And so I have to teach these students field skill skills when literally they have never seen a rock outside in the context of a geology course. Structure too, I guess. I'm, I left out structure. They all would have been on several local field trips for structure. Right. Yeah. So they've never seen a rock outside in the field in the context of a geology class. And they're not going to. <laughs> oh, man. So it's too bad, right? Um, I don't know how I feel about it. Like, as a student, I mean, I don't know what I would have done. Well, I know what I would have done because I have no sense for, you know, racking up student loan debt is I would have been like, oh, I'm just going to take a whole bunch of electives and wait this out, right? <laughs> Right. Because I want to go to New Mexico or whatever. Um, so I have 16 students that I need to teach field skills to while using just the university campus. Because we're not even allowed to have students, like, take their own cars and, like, meet us. We have a local lake um, that's not far from campus, but we can't even go there. So we've been told we can't have students go there, which is fine. I understand. Um but so we live in Oklahoma. There's not, it's not like there's a lot of outcrops like right on campus, right? No. Um, so I'm going to have to make do with that. And it just got me to thinking like this class is really the class that teaches you all the practical things. Like all the things about rocks I'm going to say in this class is something you've already learned in a different class. Right? This is the class where you put everything together and you learn these practical skills so how do I teach these practical skills and what ones do I teach when I don't have any rocks? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it also got me thinking like fundamentally. So when I was writing the syllabus, 
which is pretty sparse this year, I will say. <laughs> like, what are the fundamental skills that you need to have as a geologist? Because you're not going to go out and be a mapping geologist. It's highly unlikely that's your job. And actually, when I polled them, and this was very interesting, only half of them said they were planning on being geologists anyway. Fascinating. I thought that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. So now even more so, okay, so what can I teach you then? You know, and I've gotten to where I do this thing now where I ask, I just ask the students, put them on the spot. You know, everybody's got to go around, tell me their name and all that jazz, where they're from. And what do they want out of the class? And so there was a lot of, I want to, you know, put together the things I've learned. I want to learn practical mapping skills. I said, huh, okay. I wonder what those are. <laughs> hmm. You know, I, I like that because that's what uh, my, my grad school advisor would say something to the effect of after the end of a, a conversation or meeting. Uh, he would say, what did you not hear that you expected to? Oh, and I, I always liked that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's real. I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that from him and uh, <laughs> rephrase it. <laughs> right. But it, yeah, it, it, I found that it's really neat. Um, I actually just learned about this too. Somebody said that they do this with their class. They hand out a card and say, "I wish my professor knew blank" or something. I thought that was it's hmm. an interesting yeah. way to get to know students. Um, so I thought, okay, well, what am I gonna do? Like, I got to teach this class. <laughs> and so what do you think are fundamental field skills that a group of geologists that have never really been on a geology field trip should know, you know? Well, the, the first one that comes to mind is not even just a field skill. It's a life skill that almost <laughs> nobody has anymore, it seems like. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, a whole bunch of them came flooding to my mind to make an obnoxious joke, but I'm just going to choke them back. <laughs> so, maps. Not yeah. how to make them. How to read them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the first... Is it the first time I taught this as a, as a grown-up? <laughs> I think so. So, the first time I taught this class as a grown-up, I said, how many of you have used a paper map before? One girl raises her hand. This is six years ago. One girl raises her hand and says, I looked at a paper map with my granddad once. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah, cool. Um, (laughs) So I think map reading is actually a really important skill because not all maps are digital. Like, sure, if you want to figure out where the nearest bagel place is, that's great. But what if you go to sit down... And you're a geologist for the, you know, Department of Environmental Quality or something. And the newest map in your area is from 1965, which is not unusual. Not at all. How are you going to read that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we actually got a really good start on map reading because the university has moved all of our classes around to huge rooms. Right? So um, the classrooms that we would normally have students in... We can't be socially distanced for the number of students that I have. So I'm teaching in the third floor of the union. Right. (laughs) Which is a cavernous building anyway. Uh, Yeah. And I was like, no one knows where this is, right? Like, no one knows where this is. So I give them a map of the union. (laughs) And I said, your classroom's in here. 
It's number 315. Good luck. <laughs> but also, I mean, just walking around every day, like how many people can you say, oh, yeah, you know, that's about six miles west of here, and they just start turning in a circle? Correct. Because mm-hmm. they have no idea which direction west is, even though it's 9 a.m. And you could figure that out by opening your eyes <laughs> opening and finding the sun. your eyes. Oh, my goodness. Um, one of my friends and I, when we were TAs for uh, field camp, we would always joke about that. Because that's what the professor would say is like, all right, where's, where's north? And it's like everyone would look down, like at their phone or whatever. <laughs> and you're like, just look at the sun, guys. And it's not something that crosses anyone's mind. So there is a reason that I always, always wore an analog watch in the field. Uh Uh-huh. I don't know if you're ready for this. I found this in an old backpacker's manual a long time ago, and I love it so much. Oh, man. All right. Okay. So you point the hour hand of the analog watch at the sun, Mm -hmm. and if the time on the analog watch is correct, halfway between the hour hand and noon is north. Or, yeah, the hour hand and 12 is north. How about that? I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mind blown. Huh. Yep. Okay. All right. I'm going to get my analog watch back out. <laughs> and I'm going to do this for two weeks. <laughs> and every time I'm going to go, how about that? <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah. How cool. Yeah. So I figured this is a practical skill they need, whether they're going to be geologists or not. And I feel weird having to say that, like, in a junior level, senior level, in some students' cases, geology class. But I think we need to acknowledge the fact that, like, not everyone is going to go on to be a geologist. They're getting a geology degree because they liked it, but that's not what they're going to do, you know? But no matter what you do, if it's in any way related to the planet, you're going to have to deal with maps. Exactly. Exactly. So if... You're familiar, which I know you are, but listeners, we use seven and a half minute quadrangles, which I know we've talked about on here before. So they're topographic maps. Um, And if you wanted to pull one up to see what we're talking about, and there's a lot of information that can be gleaned from this map. This is actually how I do my tests. I do oral exams that are a lot of questions about a map, but it's good. It's good to know where you can get this information, right? And there's all kinds of great information on here. But again... No one's has any experience with a topo map, right? No. Like, and it's actually quite hard where we're from <laughs> to get a topo map. Because you can look at a topo map and it just looks like a map. Right. You know? Yes, <laughs> exactly. There's no lines <laughs> because there's no mountains or hills. The, the most striking topographical oh. feature there is the horizon. Uh, only right where we are. This is not true for the northeast part of the state or the southwest part of the state. <laughs> But everywhere else, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's kind of hard. It's difficult. But those things are important. Like, where do you find the magnetic declination correction on a map? You know what I mean? Like, you need, you need that, right? Um, where do you find that? And another thing that is interesting to me, well, this is the fun part of this class, is the orienteering aspect. How do you use a compass and that map together? to make it do what you need it to do. Because you can't always rely on a GPS. <laughs> especially not indoors. Uh, especially not indoors, yes. Um, I was really, I had a 
small-ish class. Um, the last time I taught field camp, it feels like it was forever ago. And they actually all asked, all of them said, we don't want to use our GPSs. We want to learn how to do it, you know, on paper. And I said, Impressive. Wow. I know. I was, I almost cried. Like, I was so excited <laughs> because there's a lot of emphasis on digital mapping. And we ran into another unnamed school out in the field and they're mapping just with iPads. Like they're literally putting their iPads on the rocks to get the strike and dips. So they're <laughs> not. Yeah. And my students were interacting with these students and those students were looking at our maps and everything. And they're like, but how do you know where you are? <laughs> and my students proudly taught them how to triangulate with a compass <laughs> and right. i literally tears welled up in my eyes and they were so proud of themselves and so you know that's critical thinking skills number one but also like it's spatial reasoning and there's tons of studies about why that's good for you so using those two together is something that you don't do in any other class um it's always interesting when I have like boy scouts or girl scouts who have done it before, but that's the part that I find fun. And so that's sort of the next practical skill that we spend a couple of weeks at least on our orientation. Or ex, ex military too. That is true. Yes, ex military. Yeah. They always come at me with different compasses though. So then we get into arguments. <laughs> well, yeah, because nobody else uses quadrants. Yeah, we don't use quadrants anymore. We don't have any more working quadrant compasses. Oh, thank goodness. I know. I love them. I think it's very easy to. If now you could only do things in terms of dip, dip direction. <laughs> Look, shush. I said dip, dip exist. We're not going to even talk about what it is. <laughs> um, they come at me with Silva compasses because that's what the army uses. Right. So I get a lot of Silva compass, which you can do all these things with, but we're Brunton people. So that's what we do. <laughs> But that's where we come to learning your pace. And that's sort of one of the first things that we do in class that we did this last week. And so I never actually did this exercise <gasps> really? when I took a mapping class. No. Really? Um, no. So <laughs> we we figured this out last, um, last year at, well, last time we taught camp. And it's like, People, because they don't have these spatial awareness, right? Their phone just tells them where to go. So they haven't had to read maps before. And maybe you realize this um, when you're actually going somewhere on your GPS and the your phone navigation says, turn in 800 feet. What does 800 feet look like? Not many people know. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm going to say... I mean, myself included. I'm like, oh, God, is it ready? Oh, right now? 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 Oh, no. No. Okay. So. Is it this road? Is it the next one? Is it the one way down there? <laughs> exactly. So the first thing that we do, and we did this in the field, and it was mind-blowing. I'm like, tell me where you think 100 feet from here is. <laughs> and so, like, everybody's like, that tree, this thing. And we had to do it the opposite because we were inside the union this time. And so I said, how far is it? from this wall to the wall on the other side. So we're in the union ballroom. It's a pretty big room. And I said, write it down. I said, you know, write it down and circle it. I just want to see. The numbers ranged. Oh, so it was 110 feet was the actual number. The numbers ranged from 60 to 400 feet. <laughs> <laughs> That's an impressive range. Isn't it? 60 to 
to 400. <laughs> so we put down these measuring tapes 100 feet long. And I say, walk them three times and write down your number of steps. And so, you know, every time you start walking, every time your left foot comes down, that's one, two, three, which is already hard enough to say. They're like, okay, well, how do I, do I count each step? I'm like, well, you're doing your pace. So no, it's like your full stride. And they're like, okay, what's that mean? And then you say, walk naturally, because you want this to like work. <laughs> right. I wish. Oh, God, I wish I would have recorded it. <laughs> it's the most unnatural thing to watch. <laughs> and I'll yell Everybody's at like, really thinking about how they're walking. Exactly. And I'm like, is that how you walk? That's not how you walk. And they're like, I don't know what to do. I'm like, this is literally the easiest assignment you'll ever have in your life. Like, just walk this tape. <laughs> and count. Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> And the other thing, and this is actually the really disturbing part. So I want your pace. Your pace is how many feet when you take, you know, two steps, when you go left, right, how many feet have you covered? That's what your pace is. Okay. So then you can use that forever. Like I use it when I play golf all the time. Um, and they can't do the math. They'll be like, okay, well I have 29 steps and I went a hundred feet. I'm like, so how many feet per step? takes a while mm -hmm. and that makes me a little bit sad i will say um, and then you ask for how many steps per mile <laughs> and then to just, which nobody knows how many feet are in a mile oh uh, no one does i also we do a and we'll do this too we do a an exercise where they have a topo map and there are sections on there so we're supposed to know here in the u.s we use Section, township, and range, unless you're in Texas, and it's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and so sections are one mile by one mile. And uh, so they know that, and I try to make them – I just copy off a map. It's not to a specific scale. And I say, what's the ratio scale of this map? I'm like, how do I do that? I'm like, well, you know, it's a mile right there, so now do it. That exercise takes a good 25 minutes. So – the the FAA mm -hmm. on the written tests that they give, mm -hmm. you have a special ruler called a plotter that okay. has a scale on it that matches the map scale. Oh, uh huh. So you can just like measure between two airports and you see how many nautical miles or statute miles, depending on how you want to do it. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> when they give you the test booklet, and it says in there if you actually read. Uh, they purposely print the maps in the test booklet not to scale. <laughs> and the answers for the question, one of them is if you just use the plotter. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and don't notice that the map's not printed to scale. It's it's very tricky. I wonder how many people get that question wrong. Tons, I'm sure. I'm sure, too. Mm -hmm. After doing these exercises, I bet most people do. Hmm. So... Turns out we're not really good anymore at estimating, like, lengths at all because we're not used to it. So I figured these are these are good skills. So the pace, like, why would you even need that? Um, it actually comes in handy quite a bit. <laughs> and this is, like, my most favorite thing that I've ever done as a teacher because I just thought of this one all by myself. <laughs> and I made it up all by myself. <laughs> and what we do is, um, so we have an oval at OU. You know, there's right. these, we've got two big ovals, 
And so there's a lot of different buildings around the oval and the North oval in the middle of the ovals, it's grass essentially like grass and trees and stuff. Um, and there's a whole bunch of statues everywhere too. So sprinkled. So it's the nice, it's the quad, right? Um, and so what we do is we, I call it a pace and Brunton exercise. And so I teach the students how to sight using a compass, right? So, you know, north is zero, east is 90, south is 180, west is 270, if you're talking about azimuthal directions. Right. And yeah. if you're going to orienteer, right, you need to know your bearing. Like, where am I going? Which direction am I traveling? And so I have a number of stations that are either buildings, like corners of buildings, or statues along the way. And they have to line themselves up, get their bearing to that statue. Okay, so then they have to write down their bearing, and then they have to pace out from their starting point to that next stop. And so now they've got a pace, so now they know how long that is. So they continue this around in a circle, and you shouldn't end up where you started when you actually sit down with graph paper and map this, unless you're perfect at your pace. And there's no way, right? They encounter squirrels and cars and all this stuff. And so you've got to correct for that gap. And so they make a little, they make a little map and it shows basically the compounding error in once they have to correct their, their little plot here, this little circular map they've made. It shows the compounding error you know, in their paces and in their orientations. It's really kind of cool. That is pretty awesome. Yeah. And along the way, there's a lot of like rock descriptions because a lot of the, a lot of the signs have like really cool flagstones that they're embedded in. And so I make them describe the rocks too. It's kind of, kind of mean. <laughs> <laughs> One of the buildings has this awesome, the building sides are made of these awesome limestone panels that have all these fossils. And so they have to sit there in the building. And like, I ask several questions about it. Okay. So on the Northeast panel, there's this fossil that lives under these conditions, draw a picture of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's really great to see this whole class like smeared with their faces up against this wall. You know, people are walking by and they're like, what's happening? <laughs> um, yeah, so that's an exercise I run and I spent a lot of time on it. And I was like, I don't know how they're going to feel about this. And it's like every year the students are like, that's the best one that we did all semester. And it just, it's so cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's such a neat thing. Like, it's really cool to know your pace. And they really take pride in like being able to orient themselves spatially and also to be able to, like, measure things without a measuring tool besides your legs. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So that's what we do. And in learning that, you have to learn the parts of a compass, how to do good sighting, which is a big deal. Like, if you have any metal on your body, you can throw off the compass. And so you don't get the correct readings at all and so they learn all about that um (laughs) they definitely learned about when we did this exercise um inside we learned that there's lots of rebar when you build a building and so the compass would go crazy depending on where you put it like on the table or on the floor up against the wall so that's something i don't think they even knew was a thing oh yeah uh (laughs) when we we calibrate our seismometer orienter tools 
uh, the first time I did it in our building. And then <laughs> after calibrating it, I stood up and looked at it. And I was like, well, that's only off by about 30 degrees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's pretty bad. It's yeah. Bad. Or even outside um, underground buried power lines like on campus mm. really messed with it. That's my favorite question. I always get him. We'll see who listens to my podcast because that uh, <laughs> my favorite question is, will a power line affect a compass? Yeah. And then and the they... appropriate response is Michael Faraday. Uh, I, I want them to make the motion with their hand and say, there's that thing the right hand rule right and when they right. do that i give them extra credit <laughs> and if they say it like yevgeny fedorovich right hand rule i give him multiple extra credit <laughs> excellent yep <laughs> so uh yeah so that's kind of the stuff we we do um anyway but this year what i'm thinking is i'm going to have to have them Make geologic maps with the disparate and scattered map rocks that we do have on campus. So here's a question. Mm-hmm. You don't have many rocks on campus mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> mm-hmm. We, at one time, had to do an activity that got rained out. And we were given a bunch of strike and dips and scans of a field notebook. Hmm. Okay. And we were supposed to make the map from that. And that was the hardest map I've ever made in my life. Because you're trying to decode somebody else's field notebook and crappy drawings of something that you've never seen with your eyes. And then you have all these random strike and dips on a map that you didn't take. And not all of them were good. Wow. I'm writing this down. <laughs> it was tough. Uh, um, that is really interesting. What did you, did you have like a base map with the stations on it? So we had, uh, yeah, we had where the striking dips were taken on a mm-hmm. topo. And then we had scans of the field notebook. Wow. Okay, I'm definitely going to do that first. <laughs> So, I mean, that's basically what I'm going to do. So there's lots of different maps you can make. And I know we've talked about this on here before, too. But essentially, so when we're mapping in field work, we're generally making a bedrock map, which means, like, what are the rocks? You could be making a surface map, which could, which is what are the rocks and what is the unconsolidated stuff on top. So, like, riverbed, you would map the gravel in the riverbed as gravel um but the maps that we're talking about are called outcrop maps which are literally where are there rocks and that's it (laughs) and then you uh you take a a good guess Mm -hmm. at in between you make your geophantasmogram yes exactly and so if you're making a surface map you're literally it's just like you're looking down on it and you're drawing exactly what you're stepping in. There's no interpolation really at all in a surface map. There's a little bit um, if you've got a lot of grass or something like that. But generally it's, you know, quaternary cover. Yes. Moving correct. on. Correct. Correct. And so a bedrock map is a little bit more interpolation because you're taking away 
the quaternary stuff. So you're taking away the riverbed and seeing what's underneath. And some places that's really easy. Some places it's a little harder. Um, but then this outcrop map, you have this map with blobs. So how do you turn that into a geologic map? And I think that's about what we're going to have to do. And it might be something, this depends, I need to investigate. It might be something as easy as, not as easy, it's not going to be easy, but as simplistic as here's all the limestones. Color every limestone you see green, you know, and color every sandstone you see blue. And let's see what this looks like. Yeah, because then you have to, you know, by looking at where those are, say, okay, is this a anticline? Is this a syncline? Is there a fault running through here somewhere? Mm-hmm. I, I see. Now, I'm struggling with how to, how to make structures, but I think that we could see some cool faults <laughs> in this. <laughs> and it might be something where I give them the strike and dips, or we set up, you know, a station where they take a strike and dip that's not actually on the rock. But You need to put these little sandboxes out and put a hand sample of the rock in there. Yeah, that might be the way to go. That's set exactly at the appropriate right. strike and dip. Yeah, so my TA already built prototypes of little plywood signs that he wants to do <laughs> with the appropriate strike and dips. Yeah. So that could be good too. Um, I will say that in all of this, I'm actually super excited because number one, I'm going to get to explore campus because you'd be surprised. Like we're going to have to get very creative. And by that, I mean, we're going to be talking about, yeah, the corner of this building has this really awesome limestone. So you're going to map that. <laughs> but the you can, other... Uh... <laughs> You can make this like a scavenger hunt, you know, with riddles so, to each. Exactly. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. Um, the other thing that I've always wanted to do so desperately, because we have, you know, I mean, OU's been around since 19 or 1898, I think. Um, oh, you are going to get your faculty card pulled so I fast. Know. It is 1898. <laughs> I know it is. Oh, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have to I have to look it up now because I'm real scared. 1890. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, your your card swipe is not gonna work tomorrow morning. I'm sorry. <laughs> Great. I won't have to make these exercises then. <laughs> um so I want to do a tour of I've always wanted to do a tour of campus rocks, which a couple of people before me have sort of worked on, but no one's ever done them. I want to do a tour of campus bathrooms. <laughs> Now, look, look, bear with me. Okay. I don't know if you remember going back to the engineering building, not Felger, the other one. <laughs> the right. one that's on Boyd. Yeah. I remember taking classes in there. I had numerical methods in there as an undergrad. And the bathroom dividers, they're not metal or anything, they're huge slabs of rock. And they are amazing. It's this super cool limestone, and it's got stylolites all through it chalk filled with hydrocarbons so it's this gray slab of rock with these black squiggly lines all through it okay yeah it's super neat so that's not the only building there are at least six that i can think of six specific bathrooms that have super unique rocks <laughs> and it's this great polished surface right so, uh, yeah, I think that's going to come out of this is I'm going to finally make my, like, campus bathroom rock tour. There you go. <laughs> but I think if you put all these together, you at least have a base map. Maybe it's not quite a topo, but, you know, 
We'll figure it out. Right. I think that we can make some geologic maps off of it. I like it. Yeah. So that's what I'm going to have to do. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. Are you going to try to do any any exercises based on the normal field mapping area that they go to? So that was our first thought. Um, and I've already gotten permission and planned out um, to build another online mapping project. So that's that was my first thought was like I'm just going to do an online mapping project exactly like we would have done in the field exactly like I would have done for field camp but the deal is they've done that already so they did that for one of their as a makeup for their um west texas trip that they missed and Hmm. I just the more I thought about it the more I thought I feel like this class should really be the practical skills of it They've already done that, you know, and they missed out on the, on the experience of seeing the rocks and they know how to, you know, figure out strike and dip off these pictures. Right. So while we still might do that, I actually think I might incorporate it into online field camp, which I have to run no matter what this year. Um, I think I'll probably incorporate it into that, but I think that these practical skill things will be more what we focus on. The second part of the class will be. Um, a big project interpreting geologic maps. And hmm. I think this first class, I think we're just, we're going to try to make these maps, even though they're not going to be, you know, scientifically meaningful. Just the simple act of making them and the practical skills that go along with it and the interpolation, you got to become comfortable. Right. I mean, it's not an exact science, right? <laughs> so it's like, you've got to become comfortable making decisions. So it's you like, throw in any well ties. Oh, into we some could, of these? Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And be like, look, this is all your data, but you have to make a map that's this big. I'm sorry you've got eight points, but this is what a job's going to be like. <laughs> you will be asked to do much more with much less. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> that is exactly right. And so I think it's going to be, it will be more useful than just leading them through another online strat column and an online mapping project for these rocks they're not going to get to touch at least they're going to get to touch these rocks you know well and so you know i alluded to this with the the strike and dips in the notebook Mm -hmm. but please please make sure that some of the data are wrong okay yeah that's a that is not something i we talked about making like some of the data ambiguous but I think making them wrong would be very interesting. No, like put the dip marker on the wrong side of the uh-huh. strike line. Yep, exactly. Uh, do a well that is offset by 1,500 feet because somebody forgot to correct for the surface elevation. Mm-hmm. All this is stuff that you see in real data All and you have time. to scratch your head over forever until you can figure out what's, what happened. So we already had this when when I make them record strike and dip, and you can go back to our strike and dip episodes to talk about this. I make them record it at the the strike is three numbers, no matter what. If your strike is one, it better say zero zero one. And then the dip is two numbers, and also the dip direction. And so people say, but if I'm using you know my strike and dip mechanism, like I'm always using the right hand rule or whatever. I already know what direction it is. And it's like, no, write it down every single time because you're going to have 
60 of these in a day. And if number 39 doesn't jive with what it you think it should be, you know, that extra putting down that direction is like an extra check on it, right? And for those exact reasons you were just saying. Okay, so you write down strike, dip, and dip direction. Yes. When that same data could be encompassed by the values of dip and dip direction. Yeah, I know it could be. But <laughs> if you don't have a... If you don't have, and this is why this is wrong to try to teach them both at the same time. <laughs> if you do not have an understanding of what strike is and what it looks like on a rock, like you can't learn both of those conventions at the same time. You can learn one of them. You could do dip, dip. That'd be fine. Right. But you can't do strike and dip and dip, dip at the same time because it's too confusing. And I think we really forget the more entrenched we get with taking strike and dips and understand like consuming geologic maps, we forget that students have not done those things at all. (laughs) So you could start with dip dip. I'm not going to, because all my maps I'm going to use are from the U S and they don't have that data on them. You could start with dip dip or you could evolve to dip dip. Yes, correct. And I do mention it towards the end and be like, Hey, look, if you're not working in the U S you're going to see dip dip. And this is what it is. I know you don't. Have or if you're working in the it. U.S. and like doing math. So you <laughs> and Zeb, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, I, I, we may have discussed some form of this on here before, but when I took uh, intro to field mapping, I wrote a program to convert all of the quadrant strike and dips. <laughs> into dip dip direction and put them on a map i love the quadrant method to me it is so (sighs) intuitive i've never met anyone who also loves it but to i don't know the way i think like azimuth is super easy it is also fine but i am quicker at recognizing the direction if it's written as quadrant Quadrant's like saying kilofeet, and using strike and dip is like using inches for measuring the distance from the Earth to the moon. Anyway. <laughs> That'll be the next show, everyone, obviously. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Not that I have a strong opinion on this. Not at all. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we should uh, settle this over some narcotics. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, <laughs> Which means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. I know you're not excited about this paper, but I don't care. I am. I mean, I'm not a cat person, but I still found this paper entertaining. (laughs) Um, So the characteristic response of domestic cats to plant iridoids, why didn't I let you read this, allows them to gain chemical (laughs) defense against mosquitoes. So Yama at all. <laughs> the the short summary is cats like catnip. We didn't know why. We endeavored to learn why and learned that one, they really like it. <laughs> and two, that by rubbing their skin on it, they get these iridoids that are a natural mosquito repellent. Very interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. Um so my cats are crazy for catnip. And the thing that's always surprised me is how 
fast. I have had cats that don't really care, but how fast it affects them. It's like they they eat a little bit or they sniff it a little bit and then they are high as kites. And I got one really mean drunk and I got one <laughs> one really loopy drunk <laughs> in my two cat household. Um but man, it's like instantly those cats are crazy and yeah. It's cuz it's like an it's like an opioid. Yeah, they said that the physiological effect in cats is comparable to heroin in humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There you go. <laughs> and it's all kitties, which I love. And we just go buy this stuff at the store and casually give it to them. Exactly. And, and when my children <laughs> give it to them, it's in massive quantities. <laughs> so... It's so great. Like we sprinkle it and they sniff it and then they start beating each other up and then they just sit there and like roll around for a while and then they fall asleep. It is hysterical. Um, The pictures in this paper are my favorite because not only did they use domestic cats, they used some big kitties too. They did. And they're just as into it is the domestics. So there's a video of this little leopard just rolling on this patch of... Like this catnip laced patch. <laughs> so they used leopards and, oh, who else did they use? Jaguars and lynxes. Adorable. And they extracted the compounds out of catnip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this itself was weird. To make sure they isolated that. Mm-hmm. And then they also had a control, of course. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, my favorite part of the study was how they tested the mosquito repellent effects oh this is terrible um <laughs> i will say it wasn't just catnip there was this other plant that i'd never heard of that has the same properties as catnip silver vine yeah so they they did catnip and then they did the silver vine too um which it acted exactly like the catnip did for the case, right. but okay, go ahead talk about your just... sad, sad mosquitoes. <laughs> so, when they're evaluating uh, mosquito repellents on humans, you get some some undergrads, <laughs> and you spray one arm and you don't spray the other, and then they stick the arms in a oh. glove box full of mosquitoes. God, I would and, not survive this. And another undergrad sits there and counts the mosquitoes <laughs> that are on each arm. <laughs> God and after you're friends. done, you say, here's half a pizza. Thank you for your help. And everybody's happy. Okay, so they <laughs> they let some cats get all this compound all over them, and some not. <laughs> then they sedated them and stuck their heads into these glove boxes and counted how many mosquitoes landed on them. This is terrible. It's just terrible. <laughs> I mean, I laugh. I agree. It's a little... How did this get approved in that fashion? But it But did. it's how we do mosquito stuff. Yep. <laughs> um, so some criticisms I heard on this paper. So I'd already picked this as our paper, and then I heard it on NPR, which was, you know validating i don't know (laughs) and so the person who was talking about it which is never the person that writes the paper right um was saying how we can't attribute cat intent 
And so she was impressed with the paper and the um, research methods, but didn't like the title, basically, because do cats intend to use this as mosquito repellent, or is it just a bonus? Are they just junkies? Exactly, yeah. And so she said that while the mosquito repellent thing is interesting, cat intent on using it as a mosquito repellent is sort of, you know, how do you know that? Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it was very interesting. They also did this with dogs, and dogs didn't care one bit about this silver I love that video. (laughs) (laughs) The dog just staying there, and it looks at the two pouches and looks back up and is like, pet me? Yeah, exactly. Like, what is this? <laughs> How do I get out of here? <laughs> Where the cat's like making a ridiculous fool of itself over this little patch that's, you know, strapped down to the floor. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. So, yeah, it was very interesting, I thought. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of chemistry in this paper that I definitely glazed over. Yeah, yeah, there was a decent amount. Mm-hmm. There was like a paragraph of just chemical formulas so um yeah kitties love catnip it's great (laughs) and now we at least know some of the effects them that may not be why they love it correct (laughs) well uh i think that was a a pretty great find and i am sorry that npr scooped you on it i know dang them (laughs) yeah (laughs) well shannon if folks have their own studies they've done on catnip and its effects on their feline (laughs) companions how can they get a hold of you please send me your kitty videos show at don'tpanicgeocast.com uh tweet them to me it's all i'm looking at on twitter anyways Uh, i'm at shannon doolin john is at geo underscore lehman together we are at don't panic geo um maybe i'll swing by the um slack chat room the don't panic channel on the software underground and as always thank you to our patreon supporters you can support us too on patreon patreon.com slash don't panic geo and even though authors want to put our heads sedated heads <laughs> in a box full of mosquitoes when they hear us say it until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.